we are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Truth Perspective. We are talking today on September 4th, and this is going to be the first, well, the first episode probably in a series. We may, we probably won't do it every week, but it's something we'll return to again and again. Um, we're going to be talking about ponderology, and in the studio today we have William Barbe. Hello, world. Elon Martin. Hi, everyone. And I'm Harrison Cayley. And I think the one of the reasons we wanted to do this, um, besides having just started rereading the book, is that it is kind of a notoriously difficult book. So we figured, what the heck, why not just like go through it chapter by chapter and talk about some of the most important points in it. And um, I mean, when speaking, it's easier to get points across in short sentences without a whole lot of big words, kind of. So we'll be trying to do that and giving some examples kind of as a supplement to the book, and hopefully as a, um, a little prod to actually read it if you haven't. And then after that, we're going to just talk about some of the usual stuff, get into a few stories, and hopefully Brent will call in with a cop roundup. Um, but to start out, um, Ponderology, introduction, first chapter of the book. It's probably one of the easiest chapters in the book, but um, it's very interesting because, um, well, having read it now, you know, 10 years after first reading it, um, you see just how much of the book really is kind of contained in that introduction and what gets introduced in it. And uh, Lobachevsky does this, um, the way I see it, with like three stories. He basically tells three stories from his past, one when he was a young child, another when he was just about to graduate from university, and another, just an anecdote that he heard about a, a scientist. And he relates these three stories, and the way I see it, um, kind of giving a background for why he actually wrote the book, what prepared him to write the book, what inspired him, um, like the events in his life that inspired him to actually uh, do the research to, to write the book, and also um, why it's important and why it's a book that uh, needed to be written and needs to be read, ideally by a very large um, portion of the of the human race. Uh, we'll see if we ever get there. But um, any thoughts on that? Yeah, it seems that uh, Lobachevsky was very much a product of his time. Um, you know, he was, uh, as you mentioned, Harrison, he was kind of um, these stories... Uh, that he relates are personal uh, and uh, convey an experience or experiences that he's had uh, in university as a child um, that uh, compelled him to search further uh, into the origins of evil. Um, it, you know, you could you could argue that. Um, 
he is and his study of evil is as much a product of his environment and the political situation at the time, uh, which was Poland in, I believe it was the late 40s, mm-hmm. um, as something that was intrinsic to his being, uh, a, a curiosity, uh, a questioning, a, um, a, a moral, uh, ha- having a, a value for morals and, and higher uh, ethics and, and standards for, um, for human beings. Uh, so, uh, out of this time and place, and I think what is intrinsic to who he was as a person, uh, came this incredibly, uh, profound and necessary, um, investigation into macro social evil. Well, maybe let's get into those three stories because <clears throat> the first one that he tells is of being in school. I think it was the, the year before graduation and all of a sudden, well, the communists take over, and all of a sudden, the this new professor comes into into the university. There was a bit of backstory in other chapters about what was going on, how a lot of the professors were fired, um, so you know, new guys were brought in. Basically, the the education system became this kind of state-run, party-run system, and this new professor who came in, there were the the, the important. Uh, the important traits about this guy were that he was um, ostensibly a scientist. I mean, he was teaching um, these graduate, almost uh, these students, almost graduated in psychology, but they were pretty much just indoctrination lectures. And this guy himself had no scientific background. He there was even rumors that he hadn't even finished high school, and so he came in every week and delivered this lecture to them, where it was obvious to. Lobachevsky and some of his friends that this guy was obviously there was something wrong with this guy he wasn't a normal human being and he wasn't a scientist he he would um, treat them with contempt and um, mix in science with just these um, random unscientific ideas just kind of fantasy notions that didn't really have any scientific backing to them he was just basically spouting pseudoscience or not even science and displayed no capacity for critical thought so he was just presenting these ideas as if they were um, you know God's truth except being a communist atheist he wouldn't have called it that and something was something seemed very wrong to Dolobyshevsky and of course um, it was like a violation they felt um, you know here's this guy coming in all of us and all of a sudden you feel this pressure to to uh, conform and to accept what this guy was saying, even though um, all these students had been trained for all these previous years to think critically, and naturally they rejected all of this. Except the... So, well, there's two, there's two aspects to this. One is the figure of the professor himself, but the other is the reaction of the students themselves. And this proved to be um, a big... Um, one of the key points that would um, inspire his further research and part of the phenomenon um, itself, this idea of a pathocratic system or a pathological social political system. And that was that even if he and a lot of his friends 
just saw right through it, and it even seemed crazy to them, like, how could anyone actually believe this? It's ludicrous. He found that certain of, of their colleagues, their peers, totally bought into it. And so he describes it as if, you know, some of these people who previously you could have a, you know, a kind-hearted and critical discussion with totally changed. Not only did they join the party, but they would they would no longer respond to what he calls, I think, benevolent or critical um, discussion or, um, you know, counters to their points. They became zealots or fanatics to an extent. And so this puzzled Lobachevsky and his friends, and so they tried to figure out what was going on. They're like, well, what what's the common similarity between all these people? And it didn't. It wasn't intelligence. If anything, they were maybe a little bit lower in intelligence or talent, you know, at the at their university studies or in general. But they came from aristocratic families, religious families, um, you know, different, totally different backgrounds and social statuses. So there wasn't. That wasn't what was going on. And the fact that they couldn't find any common denominator among these people made them think, okay, well, this has to, this has to resolve, reside somewhere deeper, a kind of, at a kind of bio-psychological level. And there's, you know, there's something about these people that, uh, that makes them this way, in addition to other factors. So that was the, the initial impetus for, for engaging in this study to find out, first of all, like, what's up with this psychopath that they've put in as, as the new professor, and how does this how does this work on the normal people? So, the it actually led to a few positive things, this experience. First of all, this guy, this lunatic professor, was actually the inspiration for this book. So without this nut job, uh, you know, we wouldn't have ponderology, so I guess we can, um, if we could find his grave, maybe we could go and put some dead roses on it or something. <laughs> but, but, um, not only was there that, there was also the fact that this experience led to a period of like self-study for, for Lobachevsky and his peers. They're thrown into this environment, and it caused, like, well, first of all, it caused cognitive dissonance. It was a form of suffering. I mean, they didn't enjoy it. They were forced to, to I mean, picture 1984, like the, the experience of um, the main character in that novel and, you know, being forced to go to indoctrination lectures or party meetings and being forced to pretend that you believe something that you don't. And not only that, but to believe something that goes against all of your previous values, the things that you think are important. And so this prompted a period of self-study. Okay, well, what's going on? And that in itself is is one of the um, the products of not only that experience, but of reading the book, is that the, the things that... that Lobachevsky gets into in the book have to do with um, your your own personal psychology and the the cognitive errors and um, kind of instinctive programs that humans have that cause them not to see reality um, as it is that and that cause them and um, by not seeing reality as it is this is basically an opening for being exploited manipulated and controlled in the worst form, in this um, kind of macro-social political evil that Lobachevsky talks about. So by reading the book, you actually have are forced to look at yourself and do a little bit of self-analysis on your own mind. The way you take in information, the way you form beliefs or opinions, 
And then um, you have to ask yourself, well, are these valid? What am I missing in you know the big picture of how I see the world and how I see myself? By doing that, you gain not only knowledge about yourself, but a kind of power over how you react to the world around you, including what what is and could be described as just horrendous evil surrounding you and oppressing you. And so there's that. There's also... Well, go Harrison, I, I would just comment on a few of those points. Um, I think what Lobachevsky realized also was that uh, there was this kind of um, imposition of irrationality uh, that, that they were he and his uh, fellow students were experiencing. Uh, it, it's as though there were a kind of um, uh, emotional uh, button pushing uh, where you were being conditioned to uh, think, react, respond emotionally. Um, and uh, this was repeated uh, lecture after lecture after lecture uh, as, a, as a form of uh, uh, brainwashing or, um, or, or at the very least, if you don't want to go to that extreme, you can say that uh, it was a, a kind of a uh, damage being inflicted on the critical faculties of, of these students. Um, this reminded me in an offhanded way of an experience I once had in an office I worked in. Um, I had a meeting with uh, the boss, uh, who could be a very nice guy at some times, and uh, also uh, extremely uh, irrational and emotional. And um, one day we had a meeting for about three hours where he spoke at length uh, with very little input from the rest of us. And after the meeting, uh, I turned to someone and, and I asked, uh, half sincerely but half also realizing uh, that what we heard wasn't exactly coherent. And I, I asked my coworker, do you understand what he just said? And she turned to me very nonchalantly and said, no. Um, so uh, the point here, I think, is that uh, we can experience um, this kind of uh, irrational uh, enforcement of, of non-thinking or appeal to the emotions from anyone. Um, and, uh, it's one of the other points in political panorology that, um, that really drives home how important it is to be self-aware, uh, and to, and to deeply consider, you know, who is talking to you and, and why. Well, one of the interesting things I found about reading this, um, kind of like I said, earlier was that it kind of foreshadows things throughout the book and how, especially the story of the professor, it points towards things that would later become significant for Lobachevsky, you know, in the decades after, um, and also just in the, in the specific points that he talks about in this process of what he calls ponerogenesis. So for example, there's just the simple fact that the professor was uneducated, that he wasn't qualified for his position. I mean, he was qualified in terms of his, you know, propaganda level and his membership party, but when it comes down to it, like the actual um, kind of requirements for being a professor, for, for teaching students, 
he lacked the credentials and he lacked the actual ability. Now, in the next chapter, he gets into this, and he, he, there's a, a, a phrase that he uses to call this phenomenon, and it's uh, like upward adjustment. So there's kind of this negative um, phenomenon where people who aren't qualified get all the, in, in a system like this and in a society that's basically failing, people that are unqualified get all of the high good positions that require a certain level of skill, but these people are not qualified for them, so they do a poor job. And the people who are qualified and who are educated can't get these positions. So this professor kind of embodied this thing that was actually a, like a symptom of a much wide, wider spread problem. And I think we can see that in, um, at least in Western culture today, maybe not to, um, you know, maybe not 100%. So it's not like every qualified person can't get a good job and, and all positions are held by unqualified people, but you can certainly see the trend. Like, just look at the number of people with, uh, you know, university degrees and doctors, especially, you know, I know a few from other countries who have come over to either Canada or the U.S. and who can't get a position, you know, end up working at McDonald's or something or in a factory. And this was the case with Lobachevsky himself in the 80s when he came to the States and couldn't get a job in his profession, so he ended up working doing factory work. And the, it works like this for a purpose, and that's because the people... Um, well, as you find out later in the book, like the people that make up the new kind of ruling class in a pathocracy are pretty much all, uh, they pretty much all have a, like a personality disorder of some sort. And there are only a certain, there's only a certain number of people in any population that have these personality disorders. So let's say, you know, Lobachevsky gets a number of 6%. So you take that 6%. Well, now, what percentage of those people are actually going to be um, these educated, qualified people. Well, there's a very tiny percentage, if any, of these people are actually fit for these types of positions. So naturally, in this kind of system, you won't get people who are qualified to be in any of these positions actually get them. You have these stupid, pathological jerks, you know, to use a just a common phrase, that get in these positions, and it 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 that phenomenon itself it provides this kind of it makes an environment that is not um, how to put it doesn't lead lead to any kind of fulfilling life. So if you are you know qualified and talented, and you can't get a position, and you're forced to to work at a job that doesn't fulfill like your full potential, you're going to feel depressed. You're going to feel like you know what's the point. Um, and you're not going to do a good job. In fact, you're going to do a worse job than um, you would have in a in, an, in a job that was more suited to your um, talents and capabilities. So there's that, and there's also this um, the fact that at first, you know, Lobachevsky and his friends were just hit with this. It's like it just came out of nowhere. Well, what's going on? Who is this guy, and why? Why are these? Why are some of our friends kind of getting taken in by him? And he called it, at the time, he called it a transpersonification process. Like, it was as if these people's personalities just changed overnight. And there's a, there's a really good kind of case study in this, uh, an example in Sebastian Hafner's Defying Hitler, where he describes this, you know, the people that he used to be friends with, all of a sudden, it's like their opinions changed. They became these, um, you know, fascist fanatics, and 
you know, there was nothing he could say to them. There was nothing he could do to change their minds. It was just like this total change in their personality. So this led Lobachevsky, you know, down the path of, you know, research and eventually coming to a few different conclusions, um, two of which were regarding the people that were taken in by this. And the first is that it wasn't necessarily a, tr a transpersonification process for a lot of these people. These were people who had these existing personality disorders. They were psychopaths of some sort. And it was essentially just, you know, that was the opportunity then for them to take off their masks. So it's like these were the people they were the whole time. It's like they just never had the opportunity to um, kind of find their own team, so to say, and take the mask off and just be like, okay, well, this is who I am. And, you know, I'm not rational and I'm not a very nice guy. And, uh, you know, I was just deceiving you the whole time. Not that they actually said that. But the other one was that a lot of these people, um, he describes it as a, a temporary phenomenon as a result of what he called psychopathological induction. Now, if you think about induction, like induction is a, is a psychological world, like if you think about hypnotic induction, like when you're hypnotized, it's, he's basically describing a form of mind control, brainwashing. It's like these people are basically hypnotized or spellbinded into this state. There's something about them, you know, something about their psychology that makes them susceptible, but, you know, they're not... They're not psychopaths. They're not totally reprehensible people, but they become a victim to this, um, to whatever the professor is kind of putting out there. And that leads to the third conclusion is that the professor, you know, this is something that Lobachevsky only realized years later, was that the professor actually knew what he was doing. And he was consciously using these techniques to fish out the amenable individuals. He basically knew, you know, in this crowd, I know that by speaking in this way and saying these certain things, by acting in this way, behaving in this way, I'm going to find the people who are basically susceptible to this kind of, um, you know, mind programming, brainwashing, um, this hypnotic technique, and I'm going to find the people that are like me. And, but the, the downside of that is Lobachevsky points out that he was, you know, probably disappointed with the numbers he thought he'd get a lot more of them. But the main point being that this guy knew exactly what, he's, what he was doing, and it was a conscious technique. So he knew that he could go into this classroom and just by behaving in a certain way, pick out, or not only pick out individuals, but get these people to basically volunteer to join his party, you know, join his movement. And that's the way that this works. Is that It's like this, this strange kind of magnetism like iron filings, you know, on a, on a page with a magnet, you just hover the magnet over and boom, the, the iron filings come out of the woodwork. And that's what these, uh, that's the way I see the, the phenomenon that Lobachevsky is describing here. And you can also argue that uh, the professor knew that with the sheer force of his personality and in his position of power, that he was going to be cowing, uh, even if there wasn't uh, that large a percentage of people who, who took his side vehemently, that there would be a certain number of authoritarian followers or individuals who were so browbeat, so um, uh, so oppressed uh, by his talks. Or uh, enamored. Or, or, or enamored, <laughs> uh, that they, you know, that they would offer little to no uh, resistance and, and go along with the, the crowd, the social proof. Um, 
so, you know, an argument could be made that uh, even if it is a very small percentage of, of people uh, who do get ponderized or, or trans-personified with, with this type of thinking, um, that the sheer force of their, uh, their personalities uh, and, and behavior will have an effect on a number of other people who would not ordinarily uh, succumb or be susceptible to this type of thinking, uh, but will just kind of offer up no resistance because they don't know what's happening either. Um, so there's that. Well, the next story that he tells is the one about the, the naturalist, you know, in the Amazon basin or somewhere, and he's walking through a cave or, or a forest, I can't remember, and and this basically vampire bat latches onto his neck, and he says, of course, the, the, the normal response, the immediate response, I mean, how do you respond when, like, a spider drops on your face or, you know, you've got some kind of create nasty bug on your shirt? Like, I think most people kind of flip out, right? And they, <laughs> oh, my God, oh, my God, try to brush it off, dance around, run in circles. Kill and, it. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, but the story that he gives is that this, this guy just kind of, he knew what the creature was. He knew that this was its way of feeding. So he just kind of calmly, you know, grabbed it and took it off of its neck. And he uses that kind of as this, as this symbol for the, you know, what was attacking Poland at the time and not only Poland, but other countries in form of, um, you know, what's called communism, but communism isn't the, the best description for it. Um, because it's, you know, it's the same thing with fascism. It can be the same thing with any kind of capitalistic or democratic um, political ideology. But it was like a vampire bat sucking the blood of of this, of any country. But that the proper or the necessary way to approach it is as this scientist. Because if you react strictly on that first emotion that you feel, um, there's no inspiration or like impetus to actually study it and to find out what's going on a critical distance a critical distance yeah and intellectual distance is how he puts it so uh oh gimpy in the forum just said i just saw this you realize you do know karaoke when you, <laughs> i mean karate so you realize you do know karate exactly so you know when you get attacked by a bug you realize you have a lot better fighting skills than you thought and you can do backflips and uh know midair somersaults but um but this thing about like critical distance i was thinking about that because um i think that like when you see images um you hear stories about atrocities and just the really nasty stuff that gets that goes on in the world it's it's natural totally natural to feel that visceral emotional response and so i don't think here at least that that lobachevsky is saying that that's wrong or a bad thing to feel that response. It's just that if you just feel that response and then just immediately act on it, you won't actually learn anything about the, the situation. And if you take the, if you put that and you take an example and you put it into your everyday life, like let's say you have an encounter with a psychopath and you have no idea what's going on. You just know that this guy's evil. And then you have, you know, let's say you get in a, some kind of altercation with this guy and you just go crazy. And then you just, you know, in a fit of rage, kill him you haven't learned anything. And I think that's kind of the, the situation that you can expand to on this, on this wider level. If you just react based on that emotion, 
then essentially you don't understand what's going on. You don't understand what it was about you that made you susceptible, that made you fall for being duped, for example, by a con man. And you don't know what it is about the con man himself that, you know, what's acting in, what's the, what's the dynamic going on? How does it work? What's he looking for? What are his intentions? Um, you know, what's going on in his brain? What's, uh, you know, is just what's going on. And that's why when he's talking about in this chapter, he says, basically, if we were to, you know, put together a library of all the, the horrible things about history and politics, you know, it would be, first of all, it would be a pretty good library. Um, but it would, it would lack, you know, one book, the implication being it would be, it would lack this book, Ponderology, something that puts it all together. But you have this book and you have just kind of these descriptions of wars and political intrigue, backstabbing, atrocities, um, you know, genocides. And it's all informative. It all tells you something, but it doesn't, it doesn't explain it. And it doesn't give what he calls the specific causes and processes that explain what's going on, how it got to be that way, basically like a disease. It doesn't say what the what the initial uh, susceptibility of the patient was. It doesn't it doesn't explain what the disease is, how the disease gets transmitted. It's basically just a description of the symptoms. Oh well, you know this person gets lesions all over their body, you know, starts vomiting, and then. Uh, eventually their you know body consumes itself and it dies well if all you have is this description of a disease and basically you know the stages that the, the body goes through before the individual dies that doesn't tell you anything it doesn't tell you how to protect other people from it doesn't tell you how to treat the disease and um you don't actually learn anything about the disease itself you learn about you know how this person gets sick and dies well Harrison, you talked about um, you know having this uh, reaction, this emotional reaction that um, that could leave people vulnerable or uh, set up to respond in a way that that's been kind of designed. Yeah. Um, there, there's a flip side to this as well, I think, and that is that many people who aspire to be rational and reasonable project this same kind of thinking uh, onto other people and. Um, and continue to uh, apply their own standards of reason and rationality to people who uh, have no uh, capability or, or appreciation for this type of uh, um, interpersonal or, or otherwise relationship. Um, and at some point, uh, having this psychological knowledge uh, that, okay, uh, I've, I've tried now to be reasonable and rational, um, and, uh, it, it hasn't worked. Uh, you know, what this material enables one to do, I think, is to at least be open to the possibility that what you're dealing with, um, cannot be reasoned with, uh, cannot, you can't apply rational standards, uh, to an individual who has none, um, and and coming to accept that uh, that reality, um, which is why this is so important that that there that there is a reality to uh, individuals who um, who operate very differently uh, from how we 
would like to operate, uh, how we, we would like to function, and how we would like to deal with others. Uh, just coming to this uh, acceptance um, at least affords a person uh, the possibility of behaving more strategically uh, for, for understanding what it is they're really up against. And uh, it's from that baseline that, um, that we can more successfully navigate our relationships to psychopaths or, or people who, are, uh, who have uh, narcissistic personality disorder, uh, any, anywhere on that spectrum, either on an interpersonal level or um, as we try and do on SOT on, on a kind of macro-social level. Well, getting back to, to the, one of the first things you said there, it's like it's not just that you can't reason with, this peop- with these people, but that psychopaths, for example, are so um, knowledgeable in a sense of, of the way humans work, the way normal humans work, that they understand our emotional reactions and they know how to manipulate them and to use them to, to their advantage. So it's if you don't have knowledge like this and if you don't have self-control and kind of an awareness of your emotions and, and uh, an ability to maybe contain an emotional reaction, well, they are experts at provoking emotional reactions and getting you to act out the way that you've always acted out and that you naturally act out, um, you know, in a fit of uh, moral indignation or, uh, or rage and... And, and it's really a now I've got you, uh, you know, you whatever kind of moment where you, well, I mean, you can see it in TV shows and movies. You can see it in politics with the kind of, you know, provocations that go on between countries. Mm-hmm. It's like, um, you know, I'm going to push you just far enough mm-hmm. till, you know, you're feeling, well, this is, this is an outrage. I'm not going to put up with this. And then I'm going to strike back. And that's exactly what they wanted you to do. That's how wars get started. It's like, okay, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, send a few of my my people into your country. I'm gonna, uh, or I'm gonna set up this false flag attack. I'm gonna pretend that you attacked me, uh, or I'm just gonna, you know, inch closer and closer until you feel so threatened that you're the first one to throw the punch, and then you're blamed for it, even though you were obviously provoked to do it and it was intentional. They wanted you to do it as an excuse for for them to then quote retaliate, you know, out of self-defense, I mean, Israel is a, a master of that one, when if you, would have, if you would have understood what was going on and understood that you were being provoked, I mean, there's a good scene in uh, Stranger Things about that, you know, a little kid getting provoked by the bully. I mean, it happens on every, on every interpersonal level, you know, from when you're a kid dealing with a schoolyard bully to, um, you know, if you're a leader of a country dealing with an aggressive military empire. It's the same dynamics, and that's one of the main points of Lobachevsky's book: is that this is this goes on everywhere at every level, and no one talks about it. No one knows what's going on. No one has made this connection, and that's why in this vast library of you know books on evil in human history, there isn't a book like Ponderology. That's why it's such an important book. So, um, you know. Well, well, just on that macro-social level, uh, we had an article on SOT this, this morning uh, that I encourage folks to have a look at. It's key points of Putin's Bilderberg interview, quote, do you want another Cuban missile crisis, end quote, uh, where basically 
uh, Putin subjected himself to an interview with Bloomberg News, uh, where the interviewer um, was basically, his name is John Micklethwaite, uh, who is a Bilderberger. Um, for those of you who don't know, it's a very uh, exclusive uh, kind of elite club of globalists who have very many interlocking interests. And um, if you read the article, you'll you'll see how this guy tried to goad Putin into uh, responding aggressively and into uh, fitting into this Western narrative as this aggressor. So like one of the things that he, um, he asked him about was, you know, regarding, um, you know, Putin's feelings about the EU and uh, trying to elicit a response suggesting that, uh, that Putin was somehow against the EU. And, you know, Putin basically responds, uh, you know, obviously we disagree with the, uh, the sanctions, but we wish them well. And, you know, we, we'd like things to, to go well with the EU, um, which is not something that, uh, that makes good copy in Western media these days uh, regarding Putin. So just to bring this point home, uh, it seems as though Putin has psychological knowledge of um, the, the people who have deemed him the enemy. Uh, and he is forever dodging traps and, uh, and, and goadings and, and, um, and these, you know, these, uh, these kinds of um, yeah, traps that, uh, that are threatening to make him look bad and that are threatening to involve Russia into unnecessary uh, conflict. Well, that just reminds me of uh, something I listened to the other day. Um, there's a podcast that Radio Free Europe does every week. Uh, it's called something like The Power Vertical. And just I listened to it for the first time uh, just a couple of days ago because, um, I mean... I go to their site every once in a while. Well, I go to their site every day, actually, just to, it's kind of like a, um, a good source for news on Central Asia and the Caucasus. But it's just like, you know, like our, read, our listeners probably know, it's a total propaganda outlet. Radio Free Europe used to be an open um, CIA project, and that's where they got all their money. Uh, now it's just kind of, it's still tied to the CIA, but probably more covertly, but it is a um, run by the American government. So it's this propaganda propaganda outlet for Europe and they cover news all over the world but um, I've seen the um, the daily articles that this guy writes and they're just over the top like the worst kind of pro US anti-russia propaganda that you can get and listening to this um, to this podcast the <laughs> It's just remarkable to to listen to like a group of people that are so um, deluded, and it sounds like some of these people are just totally deluded and they're totally convinced of of what they're saying. I'm not convinced that all of them are like that. I think some of them are just abs like purposefully lying and uh, saying these things. But um, they're talking about Ukraine, and that in itself is an example of one of these kind of geopolitical. Um, provocations where 
the U.S. basically staged a coup in Ukraine two years ago and, um, you know, I think wanted Russia to get pulled into, um, you know, an open military conflict. Didn't quite work out that way. Um, you know, Russia got Crimea back without any kind of fighting with the Ukrainian military and Donetsk and Lugansk organized their own kind of people's protection units, their own militias, um, that probably with covert support from Russian military, but nothing overt. And so the, the, that in itself was this kind of big, large-scale provocation to try to be like, oh, well, you know, you you like Russians? You want to protect Russians? Well, we're going to, um, you know, basically kill a whole bunch of them, and what are you going to do about it? Of course, the natural response and the response of a lot of people, like on the Internet, was, oh, you know, Putin's got to go after them and invade Ukraine now, and, you know, totally cheering that on. Well, that's not the smartest move. I mean, it's the it's the move that you'd that a lot of people wanted to see, um, you know, just based on that imi- initial emotional reaction. But it's not the smartest move. It's in the long term, including a lot of people in his own uh, Duma. Yeah, yeah, a lot, and a lot of Russians. But these so these guys on Radio Free Europe are talking about this, and they're talking about this latest uh, leak that came out. It was uh, released by. I believe it was the Ukraine, basically the SBU, the Ukrainian kind of CIA or KGB. And it was a recording of this um, Kremlin aid guy, this or Kremlin. Um, he's pretty famous, Sergei Glaziev. He is kind of like an advisor. And it's an alleged phone recording of him talking with a guy in, in East Ukraine, basically saying, oh, we have to get we have to get these different cities to rise up, um, you know, like in, in addition to uh, those in Donetsk and Lugansk, like Odessa and Zaporizhzhia, I believe it's called. And so it's it was like this damning phone recording because it shows that early, like in February 2014, before Crimea was even, um, you know, before they had their referendum and then were annexed by, by Russia, before this was going on, the Russians were planning these organized, you know, protests and forming these militias and how evil it was. So you're listening to these guys talk about it and it comes back to the, to the kind of irrational discourse that we were talking about earlier, because some of these guys, like I said, they sound like they're sincere in their delusions. But this one guy's like, well, I'm not convinced that, it, you know, it really says that much. I mean, um, the way they're describing it, it wasn't really a very, motivated, um, like professional outfit. They're basically just saying, Oh, you know, you guys do this and, uh, we need you to do this. And, um, it's not, um, there's not a whole lot of kind of military organization or it, it kind of seemed like they were flying by the seat of their pants. It's like, but this in no way, um, means that we shouldn't supply, you know, lethal weapons to, to Ukraine or like they kept coming back to this no matter how many, no matter how they, um, downplayed the actual recording, they made sure that, um, they upped the the totally irrational Western response and and uh, response from Ukraine, as if um, you know. And this one guy even said, um, "Well, asked, oh, is, is this the smoking gun that we need?" And then the other guy said, it was, "says Well, why do we even need a smoking gun? It's like you know, we don't even need evidence that uh, that Russia was behind the whole uh, you know civil war. Uh, we already know." <laughs> And then, and then again, one of the other guys says, "Well, no, I think it's important to have evidence." It's like, "Oh, well, oh, okay." Just hearing these people talk, it's 
and most of them are British, so they've got just really annoying British accents. Not that British accents are annoying, but these guys have annoying British accents because you can tell they're total jerks. <laughs> and it's just quite an experience to to listen to people like that. And, and again, it's just this experience like, what the heck is going on? How does this happen? How can people be so stupid? But not only stupid, like probably like mendacious about it. These people are are lying and know they're lying, or at least some of them. And again, so this comes back to, to Ponderology. Um, the third story that Lobachevsky tells is about his uncle, who was basically um, had to travel by foot all the way from the Soviet Union, um, you know, after the revolution, um, back to Poland, and, um, you know, had the fear of having his head blown off every day. He had to um, keep his wits and, you know, know how to know to pretend whether to be a white or a red and, you know, keep his head down. And through this kind of strategic, um, you know, play acting, get back home and how he was just, he, he had war stories and he was a broken man because of it. And as a child, he would tell Lobachevsky and the other kids, you know, these stories and they were kind of, you know, they're horror stories. They were terrified by them. And that, I think, was, you know, at least according to the narrative that Lobachevsky provides, that was the, 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 first part, the first time in his life where this kind of apprehensive premonition started in his mind. Like, here's this horrible thing. Here's this, this horror story. Um, you know, it's, it's like a, and then it came true. And that prompted the questions in him, well, why do people lose their sanity? Why do they become mad? Why do they periodically just have this you know, impulse to destroy each other? What's the cause of this? And that's a big question. And incidentally, that's the, that was one of the big questions that Gurdjieff had and that he deals with you know, in his works. And coming back to this idea of the library, it's... Well, if you read all these books, if you read all these horror stories about humanity, you still won't understand them. And that's the point that Lobachevsky makes. And he's pretty critical about, um, you know, the modern sciences as well, uh, in addition to literature. So, I mean, he talks, he describes the social sciences. He says the main fault of the social sciences is that they eliminate critical standards. Now, critical standards like if is basically like, um, well makes sense when you read the next bit. He says he, it eliminates critical standards and puts ethics on ice. So when you read something from the social sciences, basically you don't have a, a moral compass. It's this kind of moral moral relativism that gets put in the, the language of sociology, where you no longer have any kind of guide point or measure or value for how to judge what's actually going on. It's just these social forces described in these kind of vague term this vague terminology that doesn't get to the heart of the that, that doesn't get to the heart of the matter and the same thing with political science he says political science basically ignores the most essential factors and i mean i can tell this by reading books i just read a book on iran contra just came out a couple years ago and it's probably you know it's considered one of the best books on iran contra it's written by the the head of uh, i can't remember the name of it but some national security archives thing where these guys get, um, you know, collect and archive all kinds of declassified documents and analyze them 
And so this book is written based on all the latest FOIA requests and declassified documents, all the testimony from the Iran-Contra hearings and the um, independent counsel investigation after the scandal that went on for six, seven years. And within all of that information, I mean, you've got diaries kept by all the main players. You've got their, their daily notes. This is stuff that they denied having when Iran-Contra broke and that was only you know discovered and released in the years afterwards. And if you read this book or any any other mainstream book, like academic book on politics and um, you know things like this, geopolitics or um, just the individual players involved, you don't see any mention of what is the most important thing, and that is the psycho, uh, the psychology of it and the psychopathology. So I mean, you've got these descriptions of Oliver North. And they'll say, okay, yeah, he was a, um, you know, he had no, uh, well, he'd lie all the time. He was kind of this charismatic guy. He'd just make up stories and fly by the seat of his pants and make dumb decisions. <clears throat> so you read these things about him, the, and the, it's missing the obvious. Well, this guy was and is, or does look like a psychopath. Now, of course, political scientists will say, oh, we're, we're not qualified to make that kind of judgment. But that's the whole point, is that they may not be qualified, but by nobody saying it, mm-hmm. that's the, the mystery that Lobachevsky calls this phenomenon's um, primary survival asset. The fact that no one knows about it or, and no one talks about it is the very way that these people get away with what they're doing. It's the way that an Oliver North can get in a position in the Nas- National Security Council that, um, you know, that allows him to get away with just massive crimes. And, um, well, let's see. Lost my train of thought, but moving on from there. (laughs) So you had social sciences and political sciences. Basically, neither are adequate um, to describe the phenomena, to understand the phenomena that Lobachevsky is talking about. So that's why he says that... um, you know, he calls ponderology a new branch of science. Basically, this is an essential thing for the the advancement of science, not only the advancement of science, but protecting humanity from complete collapse and destruction. And one of the other um, obstacles to this is what he calls natural language and the natural worldview. And he'll get into that, and you know, he does get into that in chapters, in later chapters, Basically, natural language is just, you know, you, it's the, the words that we use when we just talk, about each, talk to each other about everyday things. Now, <clears throat> I think that a lot of the concepts in the book probably have their at least, um, you know, pseudo-facsimile natural language um, substitutes. Like, so people who have an interaction with a psychopath who don't know what a psychopath is and what psychopathy is, I mean, there are probably words we can use to, to describe them. Like some people would just use the word jerk or a snake or a, or a, you know, a wolf in sheep's clothing. There are these kind of common words that we, that we use, and we kind of know what they mean, but they're not very profi- precise, and they don't really tell us exactly what's going on. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that we have, these, we have this just natural language that we use that isn't scientific, that has no kind of uh, theory behind it, but when we use when we have these kind of 
ideas that we've just grown up with and learned from the people around us, um, we tend to be self-important about them. Yeah, Lobachevsky describes it as like a um, an egotism about our na- our natural language. So not only are we kind of wrong about the way we're looking at the world, but we're super attached to our own ideas, and then we get insulted if anyone points out that we're wrong about it. So that's this that's one of these barriers that that uh, Lobachevsky talks about in the book, and it's one of the reasons why. Like I said earlier, one of the advantages of the book is this self-study aspect. You basically have to be willing to um, to throw out some some of your kind of like long-held and cherished beliefs about the way the way the world works in order to learn how it actually works and do something about it. And I guess that's one of the reasons why it will it's uh, so hard even for scientists to get behind kind of the ideas in this book is because basically. Um, you know, they're big babies. And, uh, yeah. This, uh, this softening uh, language that we're so used to using, uh, there is a resistance uh, among many people to, um, to use the word psychopath or psychopathic uh, or even just pathological uh, to describe the behavior of individuals. Um, one, because they just don't have that... Uh, a kind of a, a deeper appreciation for what the word means. And two, I think uh, that point about self-importance and, and wanting to um, go back to the default, you know, soft language and, and words used to describe someone who's just a jerk or, or, or just uh, a communist or just a commie um, or any number of things. Um, or a fascist where, well, I like that word. <laughs> I think that kind of says a lot, but uh uh, but maybe that's something I need to work on. Um, but uh, yeah, this is uh, this this book. I think helps us to give ourselves permission uh, to uh, call out uh, the behavior of individuals, uh, politicians, um, people that we interact with, uh, for for what they are. Um, and uh, and it is a you know calling someone or thinking of someone um, as psychopathic is strong. It is strong language, um, but I think what it what it does if we're if we're seeing things correctly and objectively, um, if we have a, a good criteria uh, with which to uh, make some kind of assessment, even if it's not exact. Um, it it permits us to respond more appropriately than they than we would otherwise. Um, and I would just add to all of this that um, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears uh, went into the um, the research uh, and and the publication of of political panorology. Um, you know, this is this is decades of of work on the part of Lobachowski and, and, uh, and the network that he was in touch with, um, who were researching this. Um, and, uh, I think we, um, we honor the suffering, uh, and the importance of, of getting this information out there, uh, on the part of Lobachowski and his, um, and his colleagues when we, uh, when we study it and, and when we share it and when we try to apply it to, 
the types of news that we're seeing every day. Um, this is, it's very special knowledge. It's not something that, uh, uh, the, the, the world is made easy to, to bring into existence. In fact, um, you know, the, the, the publication of it, uh, has been suppressed. Uh, you know, there, we know that, uh, Lobachevsky sent a manuscript of it to no one less than Zbigniew Brzezinski, um, who suppressed it. Uh, we know that he sent copies of it to the Vatican, uh, and they suppressed it and they never got back to him. Um, uh, we know that, uh, Lobachevsky and maybe we'll cover this in, in later episodes, um, was, was watched and, uh, and oppressed and, uh, made victim of by, by the police. Um, so, uh, there are forces at work, um, the psychopaths in particular, that have been working overtime not to make the dissemination of this information uh, available on a large scale. So uh, it really is something to appreciate and value, um, if for nothing else, than, than the, the incredible dedication a number of people had to, to make it available to us. Mm-hmm. And that is even hinted at in the story of the professor and the library being um, evacuated of all the important books on the topic, mm-hmm. as if someone who knew... Um, what was going on, you know, purposefully went through the, the library and took out all the relevant books on psychopathology. And I, I can imagine at first it was kind of like, well, how do they know? Why are they getting rid of these books? It became clear later, and it becomes clear later in the book that um, that it it is actively uh, suppressed and that, that uh, psychopaths basically know that this information, information about themselves... Um, you know, objective psychological information is their biggest uh, Achilles heel. It's their biggest weak point. That if people actually knew what was going on and could descri- even just describe what was going on accurately, that in itself would be a huge blow to all of these individuals. And that's why it's so important to muddy the waters and censor. Of course, these uh, this day and age, it's harder to totally censor things because, just because of the mass media and uh, the internet and the, co- the connectivity between people all over the world. It's easier to get this information. It's harder to just outright suppress it. I mean, they can't just buy up all the copies of a certain book and burn them because that book has been scanned and pirated you know, all over the internet and you, know, you can find it. And it would be a huge news story if all of a sudden this one book you know, disappeared. Because that does happen. You know, every once in a while, a uh, you know, an ex-military or CIA person will write a book with some classified information, and um, you know they'll the CIA will block the publication, and it becomes a huge news story. And then in the year afterwards, you you know you find all of the the redacted pa- passages online, and people are wondering, oh, why was this re- redacted? I mean, it becomes publicly accessible. So the way they do it these days is more by muddying the waters with things like uh, you know the books by. Kevin Dutton and, um, you know, Tom Sheridan and uh, even John Ronson, who, um, you know, wrote a, has some pretty good stuff in his book, but then just some completely off the wall, backwards nonsense. 
and he just made up stuff too. So the people don't get a, an accurate picture. And you see this every once in a while in articles like on the, you know, oh, our politicians, psychopaths, our presidents, psychopaths, and then they list J JFK up there. It's like <laughs> these people have no idea what they're talking about, and they just uh, they muddy the waters, first of all, with an example like that by including obvious non-psychopaths in with the psychopaths to give people a total um, like wrong perception of what's going on. And also about the people that say, oh, well, psychopaths are great and they make great leaders because they don't have the flaws that normal people have that prevent them from making good, you know, tough decisions. They're decisive and fearless. <laughs> yeah, which is, again, total nonsense. Again, not stuff that we'll be getting into uh, further on. And just one more point on the book itself and why the information in it is is uh, so important. And at the end of chapter one in this introduction, uh, Lobachevsky says, okay, well, you know, that said, we need some background information. And that's going to be what chapters two, chapter two is about. And this background information, a lot of it will be familiar to um, psychologists, you know, practi practicing therapists, people who are familiar with literature and psychopathology. But he says that there will be, you know, certain certain details that may strike, you know, even professionals as new. And the reason he gives for that is that the book really was written under unique circumstances, and that um, that Lobachevsky and his colleagues had this, uh, like in scientific terms. They had this golden opportunity. It's like being thrown into a, you know, a brand new ecosystem, just teeming with life and new species, where they have this, you know, oh, this great opportunity to study these things which um, ordinarily, like in another ecosystem, might be not even there or the, or hidden. But here, it's like all out in the open, and it's very obvious. And it's like things are are thrown into an even stronger relief, so that. Um, the picture is clearer and more obvious to someone who's looking for it. So that, um, I mean, that just shows if you, if you compare, for example, Western psych psychiatry and like the, um, the DSM, the, you know, statistical manual for mental disorders in the U S and you compare it to Lobachevsky's Lobachevsky's actually, you know, there are a lot of differences, but Lobachevsky's is in a lot more detail and he seems to have a lot more insight into what's going on. And that is because, he had this golden opportunity to study these kind of creatures in their natural habitat where uh, things were a lot more obvious because the, the one, um, like one of the main points that he alludes to in this first chapter is that the, the primary, um, primary factor for this macrosocial disease is the presence of what he calls essential psychopathy or what we just call psychopaths. But not only that, clinically low-level pathology. So these are people with psychopathologies that are not immediately obvious. That op they operate at a low level. And so they can get by in ordinary society without, you know, being, um, you know, put in mental institutions because they're not obviously mentally ill. It's, uh, it's this thing that runs underneath the surface and that comes more and more to the surface as, um, as it's permitted in uh, in a pathocracy. Now, an example of that <clears throat> that I see is, for example, in groups like uh, you know, like ISIS. Because I think that uh, a group like ISIS, it's really a uh, a good case study 
um, for ponderology, and we'll get into that you know, as we go through the book. But um, I was reading a couple of studies on kind of the academic world that tries to um, you know, scientifically study terrorism and so-called radicalization. And so one of the questions they ask is, well, what, what, are the, um, what makes people susceptible? Now, they're essentially trying to answer the question that Lobachevsky answered, but the conclusion they come to is that, well, we have no idea. There's just no criteria. These people don't display any obvious psychopathologies. They come from all different uh, social classes and backgrounds. Some are rich, some are poor, some are highly educated, some, are, some have no education, some are religious, some are non-religious. This is exactly what uh, Lobachevsky found. And, but what they're, what they're missing, this gets into the political science aspect again, is that they, the people doing this research lack, um, lack the knowledge of these clinically low-level um, psychopathologies. And I doubt that they're, uh, you know, they, don't have, they, they just don't have the measures to, um, to test for these sorts of things, you know, on the very small um, sample study that they have of either captured or defected um, or, uh, you know, rehabilitated members of these kinds of groups. And then, of course, they, uh, they don't get into any of the kind of higher geopolitical angles and the espionage angles and, um, um, you know, black operations and things like that because that's conspiracy theory. But um, we'll be getting into examples of that sort and all kinds of stuff as we go on. So like I said, or I think I said, um, we won't necessarily be talking about this Every week, we'll come back to it every once in a while and kind of go through the book. Now, if if readers want to kind of treat this as a an interactive process or like a book club kind of thing, feel free to read along. And um, if you have any questions, to um, to have them ready for the next time we do a show like this. Uh, I know that, for example, Tom had a a question in the forum or in the chat about the instinctive substratum. So we'll actually be talking about that the next time we come around to uh, an episode like this. Um, but that is, I think that's enough for our little commentary on the introduction, chapter one to polynerology. Mm-hmm. Hope you got something out of it, and uh, you know we'll be coming back to that. <coughs> Anything else on that? Or should we move on? Well, um, there was an interesting article on SOT earlier this week, uh, which uh, was ver- very illustrative of uh, some of the things we talked about in Lobachevsky's experience at the university. Um, the name of the article is Principal of Chicago's Number One Rated School Writes Scathing Resignation Letter to Mayor Rahm Emanuel hmm. Rebukes Ideological and Politically Driven Policies. Uh, so basically... Um, this principal of the Blaine Elementary School in Chicago, his name is Troy Anthony LaRaviere. Um, He was made principal of the school back in 2010. He said he would bring this sixth-ranked school to the top of the list, and what he would be doing was using empirical evidence to support the school practices he and his fellow educators applied to the students. Scandalous. Yeah. Um, so basically, uh, you know, this is a, a serious educator. He, he's been around for a number of years. He knows what he's doing. He knows what works. 
Um, but the Chicago public schools uh, began to criticize him uh, for, for what he was doing, even though uh, his methods were tried and true, and he did bring his school up to the, a number one ranking. Um, but he had been battling uh, the public schools for years um, and was threatened with being fired for speaking out against the types of policies that uh, that the that the political the politically run school system was trying to uh, enforce on him. Um, so he took matters into his own hands and he preemptively uh, resigned his position in protest of all of this bullshit that he was coming across. And um, I just wanted to read a couple of passages from his letter, uh, which, uh, again, illustrate what we were discussing earlier uh, quite well. Um, he writes, Behind the significant accomplishment are, accomplishments are a series of basic concepts based on empirical evidence regarding effective school practices and thoughtful consideration of how we might apply those practices at Blaine. One fundamental element of improving the school was ending selective access to advanced curriculum. When I arrived, less than 30% of students had access to it. Today, more than 90% have access. So what he was basically saying was that, you know, he had a system of, of making uh, higher levels of um, curriculum and study available to inner-city kids. He goes on. As is the case with most CPS schools, Chicago schools, Blaine has a talented, hardworking staff. Another critical element of our success was to involve that staff in an effort to create systems, relationships, and patterns of collaborative activity that are proven to improve teacher performance and therefore improve student achievement. In many ways, that was the easy part. And Blaine goes on. The difficult part was mustering the will and stamina to remain steadfast in our commitment to use evidence-based practice in the face of tremendous pressure from politicians like you to adopt baseless, quote, school reform ideas like, quote, tracking, school-based selective enrollment, quote, choice, and the over-evaluation of teachers ideas that are grounded in ideology and politics as opposed to proven effective educational methods. In a word, the biggest obstacle to Blaine becoming the number one neighborhood school in Chicago was politics. And while many people contributed to this problem, nobody in our great city is more responsible for that political obstruction than you. So here in a, <laughs> in a public um, letter, to, a, to an established um, publication that spoke of education, uh, this um, principal, Troy LaRiviere, La is addressing Rahm Emanuel, uh, who we've discussed on previous shows, the mayor of Chicago, for basically uh, imposing these kind of um, political... Uh, policies that have no grounding in what actually works in education. Um, 
And the principal goes on, he says, Accordingly, in the summer of 2013, I began efforts to ensure that the residents of our city understood the negative consequences of your administration's backward and reckless management of our school district. I did so for the following reasons. Decisions by you and the board you appointed and completely controlled had damaging consequences for our school system. Although your board was unelected and therefore unaccountable to the residents of Chicago, you were indeed elected and could be held accountable. As a public servant, it was my responsibility to ensure the public understood the negative consequences of your school-related decision-making so they can hold you and your board accountable. So for the next three years, I consistently and publicly advocated for credible evidence-based education policies. This, in turn, made me also be a consistent public critic of the ideological and politically driven policies coming out of your office and implemented by your hand-picked board. In closing, should you ever decide to prioritize learning over the profits of your campaign donors, feel free to reach out to me and the principals I was elected to represent. We have an abundance of ideas for improving the system for the students we serve. In the meantime, we will continue in our efforts to vigorously advocate for the kind of effective evidence-based education policies and practices that your office does its best to ignore and suppress. So basically, um, you know, this, this principle was seeing polarization in action, uh, headed by Rahm Manuel, who, as the mayor of Chicago, we know has done a number of egregious things uh, in his leadership role. Uh, he has overseen Homan Square, uh, which is this black site uh, where people are kept for days on end um, uh, without any legal counsel. Uh, people have been tortured at this place. Uh, there was the story of uh, Laquan McDonald late last fall uh, where the police had video of a shooting where they innocently, uh, where they killed rather an innocent young black man. Um, so Rahm Emanuel, who was also formerly uh, part of uh, Obama's staff, uh, I think he was the chief of staff for a couple of years early on in the Obama administration, and uh, and also held a key position with the Clintons. Um, this guy is. Uh, I, I dare say, psychopathic in his administration of, of being the mayor of, of Chicago. Um, and he's not, it wasn't only affecting the, uh, the police force. Uh, he's, he's also had his hand in trying to, um, trying to suppress the level of education uh, in Chicago. So I just thought that that was an interesting story. And just as an aside, um, Emmanuel's father was a um, basically part of the, I think it was uh, one of the terrorist organizations in Israel during its establishment, who was known for murdering uh, British soldiers and bombing buses. Uh, he was also part of a gang that uh, that assassinated a, a Swedish leader who was trying to. Um, bring together the Israeli and Palestinian uh, police, um, 
politicians in, in trying to uh, create some kind of um, agreeable situation there. Um, so, <laughs> you know, it, it runs in the family, so to say. Um, well, and Chicago itself is a is like crime crime capital, like white crime capital. Um, Sibel Edmonds um, says that Chicago was basically one of the big, most important hubs for all the things she was talking about. Um, kind of the, um, you know, the drugs trafficking, arms trafficking, nuclear trafficking, um, all of the kind of um, dark behind the scenes illegal operations involving intelligence agencies and uh, just these kind of um, criminal operators from various states that all, all that stuff was pretty much based in Chicago. So, and it's still going on. And so... Emmanuel's probably like, you know, their guy on the ground, <laughs> coordinating all those th all those things, right? And uh, and keeping uh, keeping kids dumbed down and and keeping the police state uh, kind of in full in full force over there. Um, there was a story of uh, how I think the the G twenty or or one of these groups had met in uh, in twenty twelve or or twenty ten. And um, Emmanuel brought in a number of independent contractors. He basically uh, made um, a number of federal agencies marshals uh, for uh, keeping the order, which basically meant suppressing any kind of um, protests against this meeting. Uh, so yeah, he he is the he is a uh, a kind of polarizing force. Uh, put on the ground um, in Chicago. Well, just the 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 example of a figure like Rahm Emanuel. It reminds me of something that I did want to say about um, about this chapter in in Ponderology about the library of books. And um, I don't think I gave the impression quite correctly about this, you know, hypothetical library that Lobachevsky describes. It's not as if um, you know Ponderology is the only book you need to read. Um, he himself is um, was kind of indebted to a whole bunch of other literature, and I think it's important for everyone who wants to understand these types of phenomena to read as much as possible from a whole bunch of different fields, and that includes, um, you know, literary descriptions. And so, for for example, he lists, you know, accounts of people who were in concentration camps, and you know, Solzhenitsyn on the the gulag in Soviet Union to to get an idea first of all of just the conditions and the level of of evil that uh, that these systems can perpetrate and to that you know you can add biographies um, one book I'm currently reading is David Talbot's book on Alan Dulles the Devil's Chessboard and I'm only about a quarter of the way through and already. You know, even though it has the flaws of any kind of uh, literary or political um, book like Lobachevsky describes, once you have the information from Ponderology, then you can read other books with a new frame of mind and see what's going on. And Talbot essentially describes a psychopath, and Alan Dulles was a big, nasty psychopath. Mm -hmm. And you think about it, I mean, he was head of the CIA, he was intimately involved in all sorts of, well, 
the creation of the CIA, OSS before then, all kinds of uh, black operations and the entire kind of Cold War, anti-communist, anti-Russian, anti-Soviet Union um, kind of meme or you know propaganda line at the time, and not only propaganda but actually involving um, um, you know actual black operations or military engagements, uh, coup d'état, <clears throat> coups all over the all over the world. And so if you read biographies, you can get an idea of, of who these people were and kind of place them in this kind of um, this wider picture. So Dulles, for example, first of all, the big shocker, which, you know, I really I really didn't know in detail, but he he really was a fascist. You know, and I, I use that word kind of half jokingly, but he was friends with a whole bunch of Nazis, you know, before and during the war and I knew he was kind of involved in Project Paperclip, but I had no idea just how involved he was and that he, like, basically fought to protect his his Nazi friends after the war and make sure they had safe passage, make, made sure as many of them, as many as them as possible got out um, and, you know, avoided, um, like, the Nuremberg trials. And just, it's it's amazing to, to read the what this guy was like and even descriptions of him in his interpersonal life from like his wife and his mistress. And, um, I believe it was one of his mistresses over in Europe when he was, you know, doing all this spy work who said, um, she told a story about him. I'm just going to read one paragraph cause it's kind of telling. And it's just one in a series of anecdotes about just how evil this guy was. So this lady's name was uh, Mary Bancroft. And so Talbot writes, but even the sophisticated Mary found herself unnerved by one of her conversations with Dulles. She had observed, she had observed that, despite his cunning reputation, Alan always seemed so open and trusting, even with people about whom he clearly harbored suspicions, or whom he actually had the goods on. In quotes, as he listened to Mary, Dulles grinned. Quote, I like to watch the little mice sniffing at the cheese just before they venture into the little trap, he told her. I like to see their expressions when it snaps shut, breaking their little necks. So <laughs> this is how he, how he was describing just pretty much everyone that he dealt with on a daily basis, that he might appear open and, and charming and uh, trusting, but he was really just watching them waiting for, waiting for their necks to be snapped. And sometimes quite literally, I mean... So Dulles was involved in all kinds of nasty stuff, and he would destroy people's lives, even people that had considered him as his friends. If they were placed in a certain position that would be convenient for him, he would totally throw them under the bus. He did this to like an entire family and accused them of, well, he spread the rumor that they were um, basically spying on behalf of the U.S. for um, like in, in these communist countries, which was totally untrue. And these guys, you know, this this one guy had had been his friend before, and so the communists basically then round up this guy and his entire family and hold them for years, torture them, and it was all because Dulles just wanted to, um, you know, be a shit disturber. He wanted the the communists to to think that there was this you know massive spy ring going on when he just totally made it up. So he ruined these people's lives. Um, just because it was convenient, because they were in the, the right place at the right time, and he could get away with it. And he did that repeatedly. And um, he was actually 
the guy that was responsible for Nixon becoming a, a big thing, like in the in the fifties. So Nixon was Dulles's little, um, how would you put it? Pet project. Yeah, pet project. But there's all kinds of stuff in this book. Uh, it's pretty good. I'd recommend it. Um, but maybe we can move on to some news. Um, what's going on, William? <clears throat> well, something you won't read in any uh, U.S. mainstream media, um, but past couple of days of September 2nd through the 3rd, we had the Eastern Economic Forum, which is the second one being held annually in Vladivostok, Russia, by a president's de decree in order to promote and accelerate development of the Eastern European economy and ex expand international cooperation in the Asia-Pacific region. And there's about 3,300 attendees that showed up, and they had uh, more than 200 agreements that came out to about $26 billion worth of projects. Uh, I thought that was pretty fascinating that the uh, U.S. had just expanded the sanctions against Russia, but Russia decided not to retaliate with sanctions. So here we see a little uh, another maneuver where, well, okay, you want to sanction us, we'll, we'll just create markets in other areas to the west of the U.S. <laughs> and it's a, it's a pretty bold uh, uh, move. Um, he had an opening address where he covered a lot of, uh, a lot of ground, um, including the digital economy. He wants to open that up and make it more common space to do, uh, to do transactions, um, trying to stabilize energy prices with the Asia-Pacific, and uh, build up the Far East in infrastructure. Um, of course, he puts a little dig to the IMF on that for for uh, nations that could um, submit more money to help with this infrastructure aren't. He wants it to be more fair and balanced. Um, he wants a Seoul to Moscow transport cooperation which it's kind of interesting because you got to go through North Korea to get to get this kind of a transportation. Um, he wants to he wants Russia, Japan to be natural par partners in economic and regional security spheres. Um, he brought up the issue of Crimea territory. He's saying that is historically closed. <laughs> no sense arguing or making fuss about it. It's it's a done deal. Quit talking about it. Um, Russia is going to try to return North Korea to the path of negotiations. So it's not only economics, but he's getting into some political stuff too. Um, and he reiterates that the Minsk agreements should be fully implemented without any restrictions. And uh, Russia is ready for full cooperation with Washington, but wants interests respected. But, uh, yeah, it's Pretty strong stuff and a lot of uh, something that you won't hear here in the U.S., but I thought it was quite uh, quite fascinating to see this come about. Yeah, there's been a few interesting developments with uh, Russia and Japan, which has been interesting to see them getting closer, and um, um, especially economically, but there's the whole Kuril Islands thing that, uh, well, if, if you look, there's the conflict between uh, Japan and Russia over the Kuril Islands, which, uh, you know, the Soviet Union took over after World War II, um, you know, expelled all the Japanese living there. And now 
um, on the few islands that are inhabited, you've got Russians and, uh, you know, Russian Ukrainians that live there. Then you've got the, um, the conflict between China and the Philippines. So when the previous Philippines president, uh, Aquino, was in power, the U.S. basically used him in order to start this, um, this kind of tribunal over, uh, you know, the South China Sea and the, the, the use of what the, what are those rocks called? Well, anyways, now Duterte is in power and, um, and it's like the U S has set up these conflicts and the, the actual people living in these regions, like the, like Russia, Japan, China, the Philippines, they're like, well, you know, it's not really that big a deal. You know, we can get around it. I mean, even with the Kuril Islands, I mean, it's presented as this huge um, um, kind of point of contention between Japan and Russia when they've been getting along just fine f for several years. I mean, yeah, there, it is a, a, you know, officially the, the Japanese want them, the Russians have them, and Russia won't give them back and blah, blah, blah. Um, but they agree over, like, fishing rights and, um, you know, use of the the sea passages, and same with China and the Philippines, where, um, you know, Duterte hasn't made a big deal out of it. He hasn't really made, as far as I know, you know, any big statements about the, the Hague ruling um, on on this controversy, and China and the Philippines just still kind of get along. So it's like the U.S. is kind of trying to manipulate these fracture points, but... You know, they're doing it from so far away and, you know, with so little understanding of the actual people involved that it doesn't really seem to be having any huge effect, which just suggests to me that, uh, you know, they'll only try to escalate things even further once, you know, they can't make a big deal out of out of these issues. Yeah, they've got some smarter leaders now that are they're seeing through some of this stuff. So just just go away, you know, back off. We can take care of this. Mm -hmm. And, and what's fascinating is this uh, persistent kind of working and drive on the part of Putin and Russia to say, you know, to Japan, who's aligned with the U.S. militarily, let's do business. Uh, let's let's get things going. Uh, let's make um, you know, let's make agreements where we can. Uh, he did this also with Saudi Arabia at some point. Um, he did it a few weeks ago with Turkey. He's even had Netanyahu uh, over to meet with him and, and discuss various deals. Um, so in the face of all of this uh, other kind of uh, political fracture points, as, as Harrison put it, uh, there is this, um, this understanding or this appeal to the more kind of rational and constructive uh, thinking involved in in just having a successful economy and, and making good deals. Yeah. I mean, you don't see the U.S. making these kind of offers. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> the only thing you get out of the IMF is, yeah, we'll give you loans, but you got to have all these austerity measures, which just stifles any kind of economic progress. So, yeah, everyone's got to look somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So they're seeing other countries who are in the same position want to improve their economies. And say, well, they got nowhere else to go but to look at Russia and China and, and make make things happen because it isn't going to happen with the U.S. Well, I read the, the first part of um, Chinese President Xi, 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 Xi Jinping's 
uh, statement at the G20 where he kind of uh, gave a description of China's kind of economic and developmental plans. And just one thing stood out to me because he's talking about China's like, I don't know, 17th five-year plan or something and how they're proceeding with with implementing it. And it just just made me think, well, you know, how many countries have like long-term plans? Does the U.S. ever like come up with a, a strategy? Okay, you know, in the next five to ten years, we need to, to develop these things in certain ways to reach this final goal. I don't know if they actually do that. I never see them actually. I, I never see statements to that effect in the news. It's like whatever legislation they introduce, it's just like whatever their corporate masters have have told them that they want to get done. But they have no kind of long term planning that will actually benefit um, ordinary Americans. Right. It's <laughs> we maximize profits. And we screw the other guy. Yeah. And and that's really what TTP is all about and what the Europeans have kind of recognized and are, are refusing to agree to. Uh, and it, as it looks like this, you know, this trade agreement, which Obama has desperately been pushing uh, because he'd like it to go through before he leaves office, uh, will probably not go through. Um, what the TTP is is kind of therefore, is purely uh, to protect uh, corporate interests where they have absolutely no responsibility um, and can't be held accountable for any kind of uh, damaging effects they may, they may have on the, on the people uh, surrounding the, um, the factories or the, uh, or the businesses that are created in various places. So, uh, so Obama's like, you know, and the TTP is basically like, come on, guys, this is this is really good for you, and everybody's looking at the at the black and white and saying, no, this is awful, this completely benefits uh, you guys, and on top of it, uh, you know, there there's nothing in it for us. Um, so, uh, but that had to be leaked out. You know, only certain people could see the actual document. And so there was no transparency at all for any kind of discussion about it or for the people to even understand what was happening, which is pretty uh, pretty telling in and of itself. Yes. Uh, we've discussed this on the show, and there have been articles about it on SOT. Uh, basically, you know, whoever uh, was voting through uh, the TTP in the U.S. And, and elsewhere had to go into some kind of basement, vaulted, protected uh, office space to read sections of the TTP uh, could bring no pen and paper to to record or or take notes of uh, the information, uh, and for obvious reasons. What about this G20 thing? What's that? <clears throat> yeah, the G20 is going on right now, and I think it wraps up on Monday. Um, pretty big shindig going on there in uh, Hangzhou, uh, China. Um, now what is the G20? Well, it's a it's a international forum uh, for governments and central bank governors um, from 20 major economies, and it was founded back in 1999 with the aim of studying and reviewing and promoting high-level discussions of policy issues pertaining to the promotion of international financial stability. So the there's 19 members, and the 20th one would be the European Union. You have Argentina, Australia, Brazil, Canada, China, France, Germany, 
India, Indonesia, Italy, Japan, South Korea, Mexico, Russia, Saudi Arabia, South Africa, Turkey, and the United Kingdom. Now, these uh, countries collectively uh, account for about 85% of the gross world product and 80% of world trade. Um, so it's a pretty big shindig. It's been uh, um, getting uh, a lot more attention, of course, when they meet and what everything says. Um, this, uh, so let's see, what's some of the... What's some of the big things that happened during that time? Well, of course, you've got uh, G, you know, who made his comments, and I liked uh, I liked one of them. We should turn the G20 group into an action team instead of a talk shop, because <laughs> mostly that's what it seems like it is—just a bunch of people getting around, chit-chatting, and you never really see too many results from it. Posing for photos. Yeah, just having a good time. Um, but he gives some some pretty good warnings too. the global economy is being threatened by rising protectionism and risks from highly leveraged financial markets. Um, the global economy has arrived at a crucial juncture. He says um, in the face of sluggish demand, volatile financial markets and feeble trade and investment growth drivers from the previous round of technological progress are gradually fading while a new round of technological and industrial revolution has yet to gain momentum. So we've seen a, a lot of background stuff going on, too, where people are trying to meet in the sidelines, where you have Obama and Putin trying to meet, and and Xi and, uh, and Erdogan had, had some meetings, and um, there's just all kinds of stuff going on, but you don't see anything really coming out of it, uh, especially with, with Obama and, and Putin on the Syria thing. There's some back and forth, oh, we're real close, and then Washington goes, oh, well, no, we're not real close. And uh, so it's uh, it's going to be fascinating to see what happens on Monday when some more face-to-faces happen. Well, there's some, some interesting background <clears throat> in Europe going on at this time. Um, in an article on Novorossia Today, uh, one article we carried had this question in its title, Is War on the Horizon as Germany Prepares for the Worst? So um, basically, I think it was about a week and a half ago, maybe two weeks ago, um, the German government basically warned its people to to prepare itself. Um, among other things, uh, they've, they've had doctors... Um, receive orders telling them that they must report to a military center in service uh, to the army within uh, a few days and not to discuss it with anyone. Um, And they were telling citizens to stockpile food and water in the event of an emergency which threatens our existence, quote-unquote. The Czech Republic told its citizens to begin preparing for the worst. Um, a few days later, uh, Finland began telling its citizens uh, to begin stockpiling food and water. Um, and at the same time, you have this huge mobilization of Russian troops to the order of 300,000 men. Uh, and that included um, 
rifle brigades, um, support brigades, mobilization brigades. Uh, called, so they called them snap checks, right? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, but but it was huge. But it was huge, and um, and so Crimea was in there too. Yeah, you know, we don't know at this time if how much of this is posturing and and bluffing or. Uh, how much of all of this points to the very real possibility of major conflict in Eastern Europe uh, and, and the borders of Russia? Um, certainly, you know, it, it's distressing, I think, to, to hear uh, this announcement on the part of Germany to prepare yourself, for, you know, and begin stockpiling stuff. Um, we know Germany is a, a vassal state of the U.S. Uh, we know that... Um, that Merkel is pretty much under the thumb of the Obama administration and has continued uh, her you know, kind of anti-Russian rhetoric um, along with the U.S. Um, so we'll see, I think, in the coming weeks whether or not this leads to an actual uh, greater conflict. I doubt it. I think they're just, they're just trying, to, trying to scare the, the people into fear of this mythical Russian invasion that <laughs> Russia's going to take over Europe. I doubt it, but we'll see. I don't know. But um, any other stories before we go to our police state roundup? No? Okay. Where's your warrant? Where's your warrant? Where's your warrant? We don't need a warrant. Yes, you do. So, Brent, you there? Hey. Yeah. How's it going? Good. Um, quite a lot of interesting stuff happening in the news lately. Um, the one of the and more interesting things is that uh, Brock Turner has been released after three months of being in jail. He was uh, basically convicted of um, rape charges not too long ago. It was all over the news. I'm sure everybody is familiar with the case. Um, but I found a similar story where in Arkansas, a um, hot check division jailed a cancer patient for bouncing checks totaling $41. Uh, and he was in jail for three months. So it's it's kind of curious to me that somebody who commits a violent act of rape gets the same amount of time as somebody who's a cancer patient bouncing checks. Just kind of shows you the state of justice in the uh, United States of America. Mm-hmm. Um, also kind of gaining momentum in the news is this whole protest happening out in uh, North Dakota. There's uh, members of the Standing Rock uh, tribe out there. They're protesting the construction of a huge oil pipeline that goes right across their land. Um, and there's been some uh, some word out about how the company hasn't got the, the proper permits from the um, Army Corps of Engineers. So there have been hundred, between hundreds and thousands, uh, a couple thousand of protesters out there every day, kind of just like, you know, blocking the construction, doing what they can um, to um, slow down the progress. And just recently I found a story on NBC. This is one of the first stories I found on a major news outlet 
where they're talking about it. And it's, it's very interesting because it's over a incident that happened either today or yesterday. Um, it's like September 3rd. So yesterday, um, they basically were blocking a construction and it's unclear who got quote unquote violent first. NBC is claiming that the protesters came at the, uh, <laughs> the construction crews with sticks and flagpoles and they released dogs uh, and pepper spray on them. Now another article from free thought project is shows completely, you know, 180 degree view that they were peacefully protesting and that these, these dogs were like basically released on them. And there's uh, one really incredible picture that somebody snapped of one of these attack dogs being held back by a handler. The dog has blood all over its mouth. And the tweet um, says that basically that was from one of the protesters. Um, so this, this situation out there is very interesting. Um, basically, they're protesting because they are worried about their water supply being contaminated by um, potential leaks. And the construction is also going across sacred land, which is, you know, 100-year-old burial grounds and stuff. Um, they basically already destroyed one huge area, which was a burial ground. You know, just in one day, they took out a couple hundred years' worth of history. Um, so that's still ongoing. Uh, you can follow that on Twitter. Um, also big in the news, this guy, Colin Kaepernick, have you heard about him? Mm -hmm. This has been going around all over Facebook. It's a huge story. Um, very interestingly, though, you know, there seems to be a lot of ire directed at him for his choice not to stand during the national anthem during, you know, football games. He's a football star. Um, but nobody's really talking about, you know, the reason that he's giving for not standing. You know, he's he's concerned about police brutality and violence against uh, African-Americans. He um, also came out and basically called both our presidential candidates or both our mainstream presidential candidates criminal um, and I have not heard anybody discussing that whatsoever. Hmm. Um, now, apparently, a police union is threatening to stop working unless the 49ers, quote, take action against Kaepernick. So it's just, it's really kind of ridiculous. You know, we ostensibly have this, you know, right to free speech and this right to express ourselves. But it's anytime anybody, you know, with some, uh, with some, some clout with the public for whatever reason, decides to do that, decides to exercise their right, they immediately get this huge firestorm of criticism from the left and from the right, um, which is really ridiculous. I actually saw uh, a couple tweets um, from veterans who were supporting him, you know, and they said, basically, you know, we didn't, you know, one guy's tweet was uh, something like, um, you know, we, we go to war to defend your right to express yourself, not, you know, because of some song. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought that was interesting. Um, well, Kaepernick has also pledged to give, what, his first million um, and just donate it to local communities? Yeah, it says um, he is basically you know, donating a million. Uh, let's see, quote, I am currently working with organizations to be involved in making sure that I'm active and actively in these communities, as well as donating the first million dollars I make this year to different organizations to help these communities and help these people. So he's not just doing this for attention. You know, he's putting actions behind his words. And um, yeah, I just it, it blows my mind that he's been taking such heat from the talking heads on this. You know, it's it just shows that there's real sort of ire um, from the elite. You know, they control the talking heads. 
and they want to avoid any sort of real criticism um, of the the status quo with police brutality. You know, nobody they they really don't want to change, um, and that's also evident uh, here in New York City. There was a um, there's been a push to um, basically uh, retrain and and change the way some of the policing happens here in the city. There was this um, this proposal that was out uh, back in 2014 um, to basically make it so that police would have to identify themselves, um, you know, give their name, their badge number, um, and their department, as well as hand citizens a card, which has a phone number to a, a um, civil review board, which basically, you know, any, any complaints you have, you can address to them. And it's a very, you know, very light kind of thing. You know, we're not talking about disarming the police. We're not talking about scaling back their numbers. We're just talking about, you know, maybe making it a little bit more easy for them to, you know, handle complaints or to, to, to make complaints. And that was been vehemently resisted by Bill Bratton and de Blasio. And, you know, it's like anytime there's a, a little, you know, sort of public oversight decision, um, they, they kick and scream against it. And they, you know, they really get into saying how it's an unprecedented intrusion into police work. Um, and they, they resist it. Uh, now it's back, um, up in front of the board or it's, it's trying to get there. And the, the motion actually has enough support to override a veto, but one of de Blasio's allies is preventing it from even coming to the floor. So it's, it's kind of funny to see that, you know, when democracy tries to rear its "quote unquote" ugly head, they have all these little ways that they can maneuver around it so that they can just, you know, continue to do what they want. Um, well, just some other interest. On Bill Bratton. I'll go for it. Um, you know, he is one of these guys. Uh, he recently, or or is going to step down, I think, uh, from his position. Uh, he's one next of these, year. Or oh, that's next year. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he's been through this kind of revolving door of private security industry and uh, positions of, of um, you know, heading police departments for many years. Um, you know, so he, he is, he is part and parcel of the, of the security state. I mean, he stands to make a profit uh, every time uh, the, the police state has been reinforced by uh, some level of, of, security industry um and we've seen the same thing with i think it was the mayor of atlanta uh who was um a proponent of uh israeli uh trained police departments um and and also going to these kinds of uh security state conventions where arms and and various services are sold so uh just that point there to add about bill bratton yeah, he's definitely one of the um, one of the major players in the the elite that has consistently been pushing and responsible for more violent police behavior. You know, it's he was a big proponent of the broken windows policy, which I think was back in the '90s when he was um, here under Giuliani. And, and this policy was basically that they were going to push the officers to arrest and prosecute people for very minor crimes, you know, turnstile jumping, um, you know, breaking windows, which is where the name came from, graffiti, that kind of stuff. And the logic there 
was that if you could cut down on the the minor crime that it would sort of have this trickle up effect where major crime would also be prevented and there was really no good evidence or research to show that that, that policy that that logic had any weight to it um, and in fact it was you know any legitimate research that came out showed quite the opposite so it he's definitely one of these major players and anytime anyone suggests we reel in the police with some sort of legislative effort, he vehemently resists it. So it makes you wonder, you know, who's pulling his strings? Is this is he just a useful idiot or is he a part of something else? Mm-hmm. Um, he was also a player in Chicago, and Chicago is another one of the most notoriously violent police departments in the country. So, you know, it just it follows this guy around like uh, like flies on doggy do. Um, let's see. So interesting other stories. There's this one story that we talked about not too long ago, 19 year old Zachary Hammond. He was, uh, killed, um, by this cop in, uh, South Carolina. He was, um, you know, eventually cleared of any wrongdoing. This was about a year ago, but mysteriously and kind of cryptically his police department decided to fire him, um, over the weekend. His last day will be, uh, looks like on Friday, um, and the statement that the police chief gave was really vague, citing some sort of personal matter. So it makes you wonder if this guy has done something else that's just not made the headlines. Um, these cops, one thing that I've noticed, a big trend, is that when you have a cop that commits some sort of heinously violent action against a civilian, um, regardless of circumstance, it, they, they tend to pop up again. You know, there's been cops that, you know, they, they repeatedly do this kind of behavior and you know, nothing is done to to stop them. You know, they're not prosecuted, they're not fired. So it makes me wonder, you know, if he's done something yet again, and now the police chief has just had enough, you know, maybe he he didn't want to deal with the whole controversy, you know, that he had to deal with last year. So just saved himself some, uh, some trouble. The family in that, in that situation um, actually received a, over $2 million settlement from the city. So it make it really becomes a financial thing. Um, even though, you know, no amount of money can replace someone's lost child. Um, some really other interesting stories. Um, there's been this, uh, some interesting clown sightings in, in South Carolina. They've been, you know, now it's, it's come to the point where police are actually saying anyone dressed as a clown is like able to be arrested uh, based on charges of concealing their identity. But the interesting part comes from you know, the details of these reports on the clowns is that the, you know, they're just kind of appearing in places and they're not interacting with people. They're just kind of like looking at them or, you know, there was rumor that a group of children reported seeing them and they were trying to be lured in the woods with um, lasers and, and cash. So it, it's really, I, I don't know what to make of this story. It just seems very, you know, kind of creepy and disturbing. The MICs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the men in clown suits. Yeah, you know, that, that kind of popped in my head, too. Like, could this be some sort of weird, you know, hyperdimensional thing? Who knows? Like, it's just very, very odd. And the one woman that actually was close enough to hear them said that she heard them whispering and making, quote, strange noises. You know, strange noises is another thing that com- comes along with interactions with these like weird sort of high strangeness critters. Um, but getting back to the police, there's a story in from North Carolina where um, 
this uh, this troubled mom had her 14-year-old daughter who was being extremely difficult. She didn't know what to do. And this older officer, you know, kind of offered to take her under her wing and sort of like, you know, help her stay out of trouble. <laughs> and basically, the cop ended up <clears throat> having sex with this girl and getting her pregnant. And we're talking about a 14-year-old child here. Um, <clears throat> thankfully, he's um, been arrested and charges are going to be filed against him. But, you know, anytime you have somebody, you know, taking an interest in a, in a young child, you should always be very careful. Um, parents especially should really guard their children. Um, regardless of circumstance, you really need to be super careful, especially with people in positions of authority, because they can often use that authority to, um, you know, either cover up or, or intimidate, you know, the victim. Um yeah, and there's one more story I have here. The cop left his canine in a hot car for days, and the dog died, but he didn't even realize until he could smell it in the car. This is very strange, which goes to show you that some of these officers really, you know, they don't have much of concern at all for the uh, the animals in their care or the people under their authority. Um, wait, there just needs to be, like, some sort of severe overhaul to the way that we do policing in this country. And I don't think it's going to happen. You know, I, I think something major, you know, we need, to, we need to hit a super severe breaking point before um, we'll be able to have the sort of mass awareness that we need in order to, to push past the blockades that the elite keep throwing up. Because, as I said before, you know, they resist all sorts of efforts to, to reel in these police officers or to overhaul their training or to make any sort of, you know, little moderate changes to the way the policing is done here in America. Um, interesting thing that I saw not too long ago was that one of the <clears> – <throat> there was a big hack on um, George Soros's foundation. And, you know, one of the emails that was leaked talked about how he wanted to use – this sort of epidemic of police violence in order to kind of nationalize the police force. And while, I mean, we definitely do need some sort of major overhaul, I don't think, you know, creating a sort of more complicated national hierarchy is, is going to solve any of the problems. If, if anything, I think it would actually make things worse. Um, but I found it very interesting that, that that was kind of the elites, you know, response. So maybe, you know, and this is me putting on my tinfoil hat here. Maybe the reason they're re resisting a lot of these minor sort of, you know, scale backs in the way the policing is being handled is, you know, they want it to get worse. They want it to be really violent and really bad to the point where any sort of solution being proffered by them is going to be gobbled up immediately by the masses. And, you know, while it may sound good on the surface, we all know that, you know, when, when the elite trend to offer, you know, the, the public a solution to a problem, it's generally because it benefits them and not us. It's a very, very interesting time. Very, a lot of fascinating stories. I mean, um, I, I wrote this article last week about how the police are becoming more of a danger to themselves and other people. And there's a lot of interesting stuff in that article that talks about how, you know, they, they aren't only, you know, creating a dangerous situation for citizens, but they're also making their job and, um, their positions, you know, as individual officers, much more dangerous. Um, you know, not only are they, you know, behaving more violently, but they're making it very difficult, you know, to interact with the public. You know, you have a, a public that's almost terrorized by these guys in uniform. And, you know, when you're, when you're being terrorized by officers in uniform, you're not going to want to interact with them. You're going to want to limit, 
you know, any interaction that you have with them and just kind of avoid them altogether. And, you know, police need information in order to do their job. They can't investigate crimes without, you know, talking to people. But the more violent and the more unruly they become, the less people are going to be willing to come forward. And it just, it strikes me as almost, you know, blindingly obvious. But for some reason, you know, the officers don't really, you know, they don't take to it. And any time you see a story about an officer that does attempt to, you know, reel in their fellow officers, they get, you know, slammed. Yeah, there was a story about a woman officer who um, tried to peel off an officer beating a, a guy. Um, I think it was a kid, actually. It came out of the story in front of me. And she had, like, you know, basically the book thrown at her. You know, she was fired and all this stuff. Um, I believe she was the only woman in that department as well, and she was a lesbian. So, you know, it's, it's curious as to whether or not, you know, they were going after her because of her behavior, because of her gender and her sexual orientation. This was uh, probably in the South somewhere, if I can recall the details. But yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely, definitely crazy out there. Um, don't even know, don't know where it's going, but one thing we can, oh, doggy. Uh, one thing, one thing for sure is that, you know, nothing's going to change until, you know, something major happens in order to drive that change. So hopefully, you know, just being aware of all this stuff and sharing it, you know, we can kind of, you know, protect ourselves and, and our listeners, you know, if our listeners are aware of all these stories, maybe they can, you know, make a choice at some point in time where, you know, they avoid some sort of violent outcome. At least that's kind of my hope covering this stuff. Good. Yeah. I mean, it's just a, it's just nonstop and things, things aren't getting any better. So. I think the only thing we can take away at this point is to uh, avoid the cops like the plague. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's, there was a story about a man. I put this in the last article that I wrote, a story about a guy whose wife was carjacked um, in their, you know, in their home, in the suburbs. Uh, I'm not really sure where in the, the country it was. I forget, but he, you know, called the police and this was an African-American couple and their assailant was African-American and he um, went out to greet the police when they arrived and he, you know, opened the garage door and he was in the garage and without even saying a word, the cops opened fire at him. They hit him in the leg. Um, it's just, and that's like clear violation of the already established protocol. You know, police are supposed to identify themselves, you know, and, you know, they're not supposed to just like, you know, twitch and they hear a noise and all of a sudden they're unloading their guns at someone like that's just not, it's not supposed, how it's supposed to work. There's another story in the article that I wrote. Um, I think we talked about this already, but there was a family that was at home and officers got a report. You know, somebody called and said that there was a suspicious person in, in the, this cul-de-sac and officers got there. They didn't know what to do. Started wandering around the house that was described. And for some reason, they decided to enter the home. You know, I guess the back door was unlocked. They walked into the kitchen and the dog, you know, heard a noise and it barked at them. They shot the dog. Um, the family was in the living room. They heard the noise. The father went to investigate. Uh, this was a, a young couple and their one-year-old child. The man went to investigate. And as soon as he opens the door to the kitchen, the guns go off and they hit him. Um, thankfully, he wasn't killed. But, you know, and th they actually, in that incident, uh, one of the officers was shot. And it's not really clear how, you know, the officer was shot. But it was one of the other officers that shot him. <laughs> so it's just these guys are... They're dangerous. They're not trained. They're or they're they're trained poorly, or they're trained, you know, not the way they should be. 
um, and they don't have the wherewithal to make rational decisions, you know, in a, a situation where they have to make these life and death snap judgments. Hmm. So what are you going to do? You know, just don't call the police. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think that's the end of our show. Thanks again, Brent. Uh, Thanks, Brent. We'll, yeah, we'll look, we'll, we look forward as usual to, or, or we don't. It's it's kind of a mixed thing because we we have you on like almost every week, and um, on the one hand we're happy to have you on, but on the other hand it's like, oh no, Brent's on again. He's gonna, he's going to have some yeah, more depressing yeah. stories. It's, it's it's kind of a mixed bag, right? It's, it's like we kind of have to be aware of this stuff. On one hand, you don't want to just ignore it, but on the other hand, like being aware of it is really depressing. Like. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's good to, to kind of, you know, after you hear this kind of stuff, you know, put on some music, you know, relax, maybe play with your dog or your cat or go for a walk outside in the sunshine, you know, while the weather's still nice. Um, there's definitely a lot of ways you can do it. Um, I'll plug, uh, breathing and meditation program, Arrow Eolas. If you go to eebreathe.org, there's a wonderful program there put up by, um, uh, a lot of this came from, um, Miss Laura Nightyachek, who basically started Science of the Times. And it is so incredible in just bringing on relaxation and processing, you know, difficult emotions, especially the difficult emotions that get aroused by this sort of material. And it's a very healthy way to sort of, you know, deal and process and kind of rejuvenate after hearing all this terrible kind of news. And read Ponderology. It helps, too. Yeah, political ponerology. <laughs> Amazing book. Definitely read it. Everybody should read it. Yeah, in it's fact, a tough read, but it's worth it. Read ponerology and then do Aerolis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then Definitely. make some jokes about cops because it helps to laugh too. Yes, All laughing right. is very clutch. <laughs> okay, well, thanks, Brent. Uh, we'll talk to you again next week. Yeah, no problem. Take care, guys. All right, take care. Bye. Bye-bye. All right. uh, We're going to call it quits for today. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, Remember, we'll be coming back to the topic of ponderology. Of course, we'll be coming back to more police state roundups, but um, feel free to read the book and have some questions. We'll be glad to answer them if you want to call in in future weeks and or send in questions. You can put them in the chat room either way or the forum. And we'll get to them, and hopefully we can share some of the little juicy tidbits in there that kind of get forgotten or not really focused on, because there really aren't a lot of people online talking about ponderology, so this is pretty much the the only place you can get a, a sort of analysis or commentary on it. So we're happy to do that. Uh, it's fun, because we like the book. <laughs> With that said... Everyone take care, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening, everybody. Goodbye. Be well.